so far on Sunday mornings, we've, we've enjoyed a pretty peaceful parking lot, and we haven't been disrupting anybody. This will be interesting to see what happens. It's funny because in this passage we're looking at today, uh, Paul's in the middle of trying to share the gospel, and all of a sudden the governor interrupts. To, and, and it's funny how, you know, the enemy wants to do that. So uh, let's, let's not let that happen today. Hopefully I'll try to be interesting and, and try to keep your attention, and uh, hopefully the music doesn't uh, get weird. All right. I make it weird already. That's good. Hey, we're in Acts 26. I was going to say real quick, by the way, um, we've been talking about ways to partner with the other church that we, we came out of years ago, CBC in the village. Uh, the new pastor there, Jeff's a friend of ours. And one of the ways we're talking about it right now and, and kind of brainstorming is how can we uh, work our youth groups um, t- t- together? Because they're kind of in a spot right now. When we started, we didn't have anything. And so we just utilized what they had. And, and now we're kind of at that same spot where we're looking at these things. So no big announcements or anything, but just be praying that um, that's an opportunity for us to come together and utilize resources and, and kind of join forces in a way that is helpful and, and makes sense. And so we're praying through that right now and talking about it. But pray along with us, please. Okay. If you were here last week, you know that we left this narrative in one of those um, to be continued modes that I used to hate when I was a kid, when I was watching my television shows and you had, you know, back then you had to wait a full week and sometimes a whole season before you found out what happened. And so you guys have had to wait a week and I hope you hung in there and, and uh, maybe even read ahead because it's always nice when that happens. But in case you weren't here last week, Paul is about ready to speak to King Agrippa, Governor Festus, and a large group of dignitaries that have come together uh, with great pomp, we're told, to, to, to listen to Paul. Uh, this is just kind of another day at the office for Paul. He's He's been uh, standing trial over and over and over again since he came back to Jerusalem. So this is just like, okay, another one of these. All right. He's currently been under house arrest for the last two years in Caesarea. A new governor named Festus has just been appointed. And, and unfortunately, he's kind of just inherited this problem of Paul from, the, from his predecessor. And as I mentioned last week, Festus is, is stuck firmly between a rock and a hard place because his job as governor is to try to keep the, the Jewish people happy. That's part of the, the area he oversees. And at the same time, keep Rome happy. That's not an easy thing to do. In fact, the guy before him, Governor Felix, failed at it and got fired because of it, because the Jews couldn't stand him and what he would do. So they complained and he got he got canned. And now Festus is coming in trying not to have the same thing happen to him. Doesn't want to follow in those footsteps. Well, the problem that he's facing is that the Jews are demanding that Paul be condemned. They're not going to be happy unless Paul's condemned. The problem is they don't have any real charges against him. And so as Festus looks into this, he finds out really their only complaint is that, hey, we have different theology. He doesn't agree with our theology and we don't agree with his theology. Well, Festus is going, huh? I don't know what that means. He's Roman. He doesn't understand these things at all. So he's completely out of his depth. He has no clue what's going on. But he has come to the realization that, that Paul is innocent. And hasn't done anything wrong and really should be set free. The problem is he can't do that because that'll make the Jews very unhappy. So he clearly cannot choose that option. The other issue that he's now facing is that Paul has just appealed to Caesar. That's his right as a Roman citizen. Festus wanted him to go back to Jerusalem, be tried again. Paul had had enough of that. He knew what was going to, you know, that's the wrong way. He's trying to go to Rome. So he appeals to Caesar and that's where he's headed next. But, but the problem with this is that means Emperor Nero is about to have Festus walk into his courtroom with Paul and, and he's going to ask the question, you know, what, what, what was he charged with? What's he done wrong? And, and Festus is going to have to go, nothing. Well, that's bad. That's really awkward. If you're, especially keep in mind, if you know anything about Nero, you don't want to waste this guy's time. You don't want to go into his courtroom with nothing. And that's what Festus has is a big, you know, nothing. So he doesn't want to look foolish. He doesn't want to waste his time. So right now he's just probably questioning this, this whole, you know, new job that he's taken, you know, you know, become governor, they said. It'll be fun, they said. It hasn't been for him at all right now. He's, he's probably, 
rethinking this whole thing. But as luck would have it, uh, the Jewish king Agrippa has just arrived into town with his sister Bernice to kind of meet Festus for the first time and, and get to know him a little bit, welcome him to his new position. And Festus sees this as a perfect opportunity to, to basically use Agrippa to find out what the, what the beef is. What's, what's this all about? Why are these guys at odds? What can we do to fix it? And more importantly, what charges can I bring? When I, if I do, you know, when we go to Rome, what am I going to say? So in chapter 25, Festus brings Agrippa up to speed on everything that's transpired, and Agrippa to meet, agrees to meet with Paul. He says, yeah, I'd like to talk to this guy and find out more. So that's kind of where we pick things up this morning. And as I mentioned last week, even though this could all be justifi- justifiably frustrating for Paul, he sees it as an opportunity and even a fulfillment of what God already told him he would be doing. Back in Acts 9, when he got saved, God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you go before kings and tell them about me. And now he's standing here going, oh, okay, I see what's up. Paul is uh, getting an incredible opportunity to talk to some very influential people that he never would have been able to gain an audience with otherwise. Now, I want you to, as we go through this, it's kind of a long section, but I'd like to hit it all if possible. Uh, pay attention to how Paul kind of takes lemons and makes lemonade, right? You know, we, we can do that. When circumstances get bad around us, when things aren't good, you can look for that opportunity God, God's given you and make the most of it. And watch how he does this. So we're going to start in 26, verse 1. It says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. You know, Paul's gotten used to trying to explain this stuff to Roman officials that they just, you know, bounces off of. They don't understand. And now he's got Agrippa here who knows the ins and outs of all of this stuff. And so he sees himself as fortunate to finally kind of have an insider to talk to these things about. He can just shoot straight with him, tell him what's up, and he'll know. Also notice the, the genuine humility and respect that comes from Paul as he talks to those in authority over him. <laughs> There's a whole sermon in that right now. You know, these guys, he, he, these guys weren't good leaders necessarily. They were corrupt in, in, in many ways, but he shows them respect because of the position that they have. Notice also that he's not trying to negotiate his release. He's not whining. He's not fearful. He doesn't seem the least bit worried about what the king might do to him as he says the things he says. You know, the king might not like my message. I better tone it down. You're not going to see any of that here. In fact, you'll see quite the opposite. He's respectful, but he's bold and confident. He starts out by basically explaining that he has a long, illustrious career in being Jewish. Like, here's my credentials, King Agrippa. You want to see my credentials? You want to see my resume? Here you go. That's what he starts with. He's just as Jewish as his accusers and arguably even more devoted than most of them. So in verse 4, he says this. My manner of life from youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So when you're, when you're looking at like the, the rungs in Judaism, you know, you've got like the low rungs. And then when you get to the top, that's where the Pharisees sit. So he's saying, that's where I was. I was up at that rung, the highest one, basically. High priest is arguably higher, but you understand the point. He went from a guy that was known as the Pharisee of Pharisees, basically a rock star among the Jews, to scum of the earth in a, in a very short period of time. And it was all because he embraced Jesus as the promised Messiah. That's the only thing he did different, you know, was I, I received Jesus as Messiah and immediately dropped to that position. The frustrating thing for Paul is he understood that they have so much in common. 
you know, him and his Jewish brothers have so much in common, and he doesn't like that they're at odds. They don't have to be. They all hope in the same promises of God to send them a Savior. The only difference is Paul has found that Jesus is that Savior, and that's where he's placed his hope, and, and, and the Jews have not done that yet. They're still waiting and hoping, which is what he explains in verse 6. He says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise God made to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible any of you or to any of you that God raises the dead? That's where Paul kind of boils this down. You know, we, we hope in the same things we've been hoping for. It. We worship day and night with this in mind. And yet they just can't, you know. The resurrection of the dead is something that they're, they're not willing to see. Because for Paul, you see, that's the thing that would connect the dots. Once you accept the resurrection of Jesus, the, all the rest of it fills in. That's the, that's the part that, that's like the piece of the puzzle. You know, when you get to that you know, the last piece, boom, you put that in and the whole thing, that's what's missing. And, and it shouldn't be a surprise. You know, who specializes in creating life out of nothing? Like if you see life created out of nothing, who, who is it that did that? It's God every time. Right? Let there be light. And there was light. That was God. Lazarus, come forth. That was God. Jesus, coming out of the tomb three days later, guess who that was? That's God. And, and that's Paul's point. He's like, how can they not see this? This is as obvious as the nose in front of their face, and they won't see it. And, and he's frustrated by it. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I feel that way a lot. It's like, why can't people just get it? Why can't they just understand? It's so obvious. Well, it's obvious when you're on this side of it. I remember being on the other side of it. It wasn't very obvious. And that's because these things are revealed by God. And Paul is proof of that. You know, he didn't accept the reality of Jesus until God gave him really no other option in his case. And that's what Paul explains to Agrippa next as he confesses how much he once hated and opposed Jesus and his followers. In verse 9, he says, I myself was convinced that they ought to do, or that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. <laughs> Paul was committed to this. And I want to point out, by the way, that kind of hostility towards Christians is nothing new. Paul was doing it. Guess what? It's happening today. And I want you to consider two things about that, because I think when we see the hostility towards Christians rise, we start to get worried. Paul, God wasn't worried. It didn't thwart God even a little. Paul, with all of his might, was just saying, I'm going to take them all down. And God was like, oh, that's cute. That's cute. Oh, look at Paul. That's how he felt about it. It didn't thwart his plan even a little. And look what God did. He took somebody that was dead set against him, hated him, and he converted him with no problem at all. That's pretty cool. It's almost like, you know, you picture Paul just, you know, I'm going to stomp out Christianity and God, just like a little ant on a table, just kind of goes, bink, and flips him the other direction. That's how hard it was. That's pretty cool. But don't take my word for it. Listen to Paul's own testimony. Verse 12. He says, in regards to stomping out Christianity, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw a light on the way from heaven. Or I saw, excuse me, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and all those who journeyed with me. And when I had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting with me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
That's a great saying. <laughs> Imagine, you know, Paul traveling full speed ahead with every fiber of his being, determined to wipe out Christianity, and then this, this bright light just hits him. Now, I've seen some bright lights in my time, but I've never had anything that, that like, just knocked me over, that I fell to the ground. That's what Paul has. Just, boom, he's on the ground. Like, what is going on here? And then the voice shows up. Hey, Saul, Saul, oh, Saul, you know, you kind of just, uh, what are you doing, guy? Who do you think you're messing with exactly here? That's the, the simple question Jesus asks is, why, why are you persecuting me? And I've said this before, but I believe, you know, in Paul's mind, who was he going after? Christians, not Jesus. Jesus was dead and gone. He was going after Christians. Jesus didn't see it that way. He doesn't separate the two. He says, if you're coming after them, you're coming after me. You know, that sounds like what family says, doesn't it? Do you think about that? He's family. We're family to him. And and Jesus loves his bride. He protects his bride. You better treat her right. You know, when I was, when growing up, you know, every once in a while I have this kind of thing that would raise up in me that would scare my kids. And it was when they started to talk poorly to my wife. If they disrespected my wife or started to treat her bad, something just raised up in me and I would say, Oh, you're not going to talk to my wife that way. That's my wife. Watch it. I mean, I get it. Didn't I didn't like it and they knew it. And I'm still that way today, but they've learned their lesson. But, you know, this is what Jesus is basically saying. Be careful how you talk about my bride. Be careful how you treat my bride. You know, we, the church gets maligned a lot today. And I find myself doing it sometimes because the church is pretty easy target. Right. This is his bride who he loves, who he purchased with his own blood. And we should have some respect for his bride. And then there's that phrase, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, or the, the King James says the pricks. And, and an ox goad was something you would use, like I'm a farmer, I read about this, I've never done this. I've never, I've never actually like, you know, had an ox in front of me, and I don't ever want to. But you would have a tool called an ox goad that you would have, a, it had a point on it, and you could direct the ox in the way you wanted it to go. And if the ox said, I don't want to go that way, they would kick, that point would, would really come in handy. And, and they would, when they kicked against the goads, it was like, oh, okay, we're going, we're going to do this your way. And that's really what this is saying. That's God's way of telling Paul, hey, we're not going to do things your way anymore. We're going in a new direction, Paul. And resistance is futile, right? There's a Trekkie out there. There she is. We found her right there. So Paul's a quick learner. <laughs> so he asks a very logical question in verse 15. He said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand up on your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things you have seen me, uh, seen in me and, and the, the things that I will show you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who were sanctified by faith in me. I mean, can you imagine Paul right now? God's just saying, hey, new game plan, Paul. Instead of doing everything you can to try to wipe out Christianity, you're going to start winning people to Christianity. Oh, and not just, you know, your people, but non-Jews too. I mean, I just think if you were to, if you would have said that to Paul, like the day before, Hey, guess what tomorrow I was going to guess what's going to happen tomorrow, Paul. Do you think he would have agreed? Do you think he would have said, you're out of your mind, you're you know, you're out of your ever loving mind or whatever you, there's no way Paul would have thought this was even a possibility, but with God, all things are possible. God made an offer Paul couldn't refuse, right? 
And Paul got right on it. I like what he says in verse 19. He says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I like that. You think? Yeah. No, he was not. But I declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. You know, Paul got a call from God and like the energizer bunny, he just set off to go do it. Like first I said, okay, I was in Damascus. So I hit them. Then I went to Jerusalem. I was over here. Then I went there. And that's, you think about why Paul went on the third mission, the three missionary journeys. This is why it's kind of neat to see. Verse 21, Paul explains that everything that he has told Agrippa about is the reason the Jews are out to get him. I'm sorry. Verse 21. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me to this day. I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would have said, or what what, what they said would come to pass. So Paul's basically saying in the midst of all of his suffering and all of his persecution, that he acknowledges God's plan and protection through it all. You know, they want, with all their being, they want to snuff me out. They want to wipe me out. And they can't. Like, you can't, can't touch this, right? You can't. You can't stop this. That's probably a better way to say it. I'll start dancing up here. That's very funny. In the, in the great words of the theologian M.C. Hammer, can't touch this. Th- that's what, that's what, <laughs> break it down. Somebody can break it down for me. I'm not going to break it down up here. That wouldn't be good. But, but basically through this whole thing, God has protected Paul. Here he is standing in front of kings and governors and, and they've tried with all their might to do it. And he's like, no, God's protected me. He's brought me right here so that I can speak to both the small and the great. And there's nothing they can do about it. That, that, that alone is a testimony that this is God. You know, these are supposedly, the, you know, God's people that want to stop Paul, and they can't. What does that tell you? Like, who's winning here, right? And Paul then points out that at the end of the day, the Jews really don't have anything to be mad about because they all agree. They all agree that what, the, what Moses has said and what the prophets said is the same thing. There's no difference in that. That Verse 23 says that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Those truths are in the Old Testament everywhere if you're willing to look for them and see them. The problem is the Jews weren't. And Paul wasn't at one time, but now he sees it everywhere. Have you ever, have you ever had that happen with a certain doctrine? Like, I don't think that's in the Bible. And then all of a sudden, when you believe, you accept that, okay, that's real. Then you just start to see it everywhere. Right? I do the same thing when I buy a new car. It's like, there's no other cars like this on the street. And then you're driving home and you're like, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. You start to see them everywhere because now you're kind of paying attention. And that's true of this as well. It's everywhere in the Old Testament to see if you're willing to. The Jewish faith has always looked forward to a Messiah and to a resurrection. And Paul is consistent with those views. The only real difference is he believed that God fulfilled those in Christ and the Jews don't. Well, up until this point, Festus has been kind of, you know, he's got Paul in a long lead, so to speak, because he's trying to like, hopefully I can get some things figured out here. So I'm going to let him just go. But he's kind of reached his limit at this point. And, and, and you can just see that, you know, have you ever just been uncomfortable or embarrassed with what somebody's saying as they're talking? You're just going, oh, you know, maybe I could just stop, you know, that's where Festus is right now. He is just going crazy. And you can almost hear like his, you know, his voice crack nervously in verse 24 as he goes. And as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Uh, Your great learning uh, has driven you out of your mind. Like you, he's crazy. Sorry, Agrippa. This has gone on long enough. This guy's clearly nuts. You know, my bad. Uh, That's kind of what you see. But, But Paul says in verse 25, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. 
but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. That's his way of saying, like, King Agrippa knows everything I'm saying. The death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and all that's followed after is, like, that's been front-page headlines for everybody to see. This is not, like, some secret thing, and Agrippa knows exactly what I'm talking about. Even if you don't, Festus, he knows. He still remains respectful to Festus, but, but he explains that, hey, this is primarily meant for King Agrippa. That's who I'm talking to right now. He's, he, he's going to understand this. He's fully aware. And then what Paul does next is pretty amazing. He tries to close the deal with Agrippa. I just love this. You know, he's over here basically explaining what happened. But guess what? Paul sees this as an opportunity to share the gospel with Agrippa and try to win him over. It's almost like a chess match in, in a way. Uh, he tries to put Agrippa in check. So he, he basically asks a question that Agrippa can't say yes to and can't say no to without getting in trouble. It's pretty smart. So verse 27, he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. See, what happens here is that Agrippa, who's a professing Jew, he claims to follow the Jewish faith. If he answers, no, I don't believe the prophets, that would be like you saying, I don't believe what's written in the Bible. Your credibility kind of goes out the window if you say, I don't believe God's word. And he can't, so he can't say that. But if he says, yes, I do believe the prophets, guess what Paul's going to do next? He's going to say, well, then what's standing in your way right now of submitting your life fully to Jesus Christ, our Messiah? And, and, and Agrippa knows that's coming. And like kind of a slimy politician, he finds a way to wiggle out of this by not answering the question at all. You know, still happens today. So, so Paul's trying to, like, say checkmate. And Agrippa's like, not so fast. And instead he says this, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now, he knows what Paul's doing. And Paul doesn't apologize for it. He happily admits it in verse 29. Yeah, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. And then he says, except for these chains, which I think is pretty funny. He's like, you know, you want me to become like you, Paul? I want you to become exactly like me. I want you to fall on your face before Jesus Christ, admit that he's Lord and Savior, and submit to him. I want you to become just like me. And you can see as he's saying this, you know, he's, I'm picturing shackles on his hands and feet. Well, not except for this part, you know, that clearly not that part. But it's cool because even though Paul's shackled and in chains here, he's completely free. I love that picture of the freedom that Paul has to do what he's doing right now. And I love heart, uh, Paul's heart for the lost. You know, he didn't know these guys anything. A case could have even been made that they were his enemies in the way that they've treated him and the things, you know, the fact that they've kept him here this whole time. And yet he, he decides that I'm going to treat these guys with love and I'm going to care about them. Jesus said to do what with our enemies? Love them and pray for them. And, and you see this heart of Paul in this. Boy, wouldn't that change the landscape of social media if, if we took that to heart. Well, the meeting now comes to an end and verse 30 says, then the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him. Uh, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And you almost have that like, oh, Paul, you, it was so close. You know, if you wouldn't have done that, you, but, but you know what? We look at that and we think, oh, wrong door, Paul. But that's not true at all. What's happening right now is that God said, my design for you is to go to Rome and everything is going according to plan. It doesn't matter what it looks like. Uh, you know, that's the plan and that's what's happening. And God is, his will is prevailing. 
Okay, so there's a ton of good application points um, from this this thing, and I would invite you to dig in and find those for yourself. I'm only going to focus on three uh, because we're trying to, like, you know, preach shorter and not keep you held hostage out here and all that kind of stuff. But I have more. I'm just going to limit. I'm just a self-control. I want you to appreciate that. Uh, the three things we're going to look at is the posture of a Christian under trial, that resurrection equals hope, and then the importance of our personal testimony. So the first one is the posture of a Christian under trial. I think we would all agree that Paul's circumstances were less than ideal, right? And yet, we don't see Paul feeling sorry for himself. Uh, We don't see him complaining. We don't see him demanding his rights or saying, you know, what about my due process? You don't see that. We, We see him simply making the most of the opportunities that God has placed before him. That's what he does. You don't see him just screaming at the sky and, you know, I'm mad as heck and I'm not going to take it anymore. And that's how I feel a lot of times these days. You know, when I think about the stuff going on and I, I we just had a meeting this week where I was all fired up. Terry's laughing because I was, I'm like, you know, these masks, they're causing us angst. And I'm like, you know, and I'm, I'm getting mad. And then I have to stop. And they, they, they talked me off the ledge and said, honor God. Brent. And I'm like, okay, uh, Paul is, you know, there's a horrible dad joke, but I can't pass it up. You know, the apostle, some say the apostle Paul was against masks because he was on the road to demask us. I'll let myself out now. It's like, sorry, I shouldn't have. I repent from that too. Terrible. I know. Horrible. Paul is respectful and yet he's bold. He's wise and yet he's uncompromising. And I love that, you know, Paul wrote something in Ephesians 4.15 to us that I see him doing himself. He spoke the truth in love. That's hard to do, but Paul's doing it. You see his words and his heart both coming through loud and clear. What we say as Christians is really important. How we say it is also really important. Now, I wonder, you know, how was Paul able to maintain, <laughs> I mean, I really wonder, how, were you, how was he able to maintain such a humble and loving posture in the midst of such crummy circumstances? And the reason is because Paul possessed a living hope because he believed the resurrection was real. His his belief in the resurrection really is the key to all of this. Because resurrection equals hope. Hope for this life and hope for the life to come for everyone who believes in it. You know, nothing seemed to ruffle Paul because of the impact that that made in his life. The moment that he met a resurrected Jesus, it all changed for him. And the reason for that is, you remember when you were a kid and somebody would come up with this, this claim of some kind, you know, oh, I can do this. You, you know what you'd say to him? Prove it. Right? Talk cheap. Prove it. Well, Jesus proved it. Right? He said, I'm, I'm the son of God. I've come to pay for sins. I've come to take your place and become your substitute if you'll receive that by faith. And I'm going to prove that to you. How? Because three days after they stick me in the ground, I'm going to walk out. You're going to do what? I'm going to walk out alive. That proves everything Jesus said. And Paul knew it. At that point, everything that Jesus said became true. Who he was is true. What he said he did is true. Uh, The fact that he conquered sin and death on our behalf is true. I don't have to worry about sin and death anymore. My two greatest enemies, because what Jesus said is true. And what he promised for our future is true. You know what that fills me with? Hope. You know, again, I, you know, you can't touch this. I, it goes back to that thing. I, maybe I got a sermon title. It, 
what's going to come against me if God is for me? If this is true, I have nothing but hope. And, and that's what we see. God's going to do what he told us he was going to do. He's going to promise. Everything should change when you meet the resurrected Jesus. Has that been true for you? You may not have been ambushed on the Damascus Road with a bright light that knocked you over, right? And heard God calling your name. But maybe, maybe just maybe in a spiritual way, it's exactly what's happened to you. At some point, God confronted you in the direction you were going, right? And the light of the gospel broke through to you, and he called you by name and said, I want you to follow me. And you did. That's all that happened to Paul. And I know that I can say, honestly, that's what happened to me when I was 19 years old. That's what happened. What will you do with the truth of the resurrection? You can kick against the goads. <laughs> you know, I did that for a long time. I tried not to submit to God. I tried to kick against him, but eventually he, he won me over, obviously. At some point, you have to decide what you're going to do with this. Will you turn and believe, or will you continue to kick? You know, turning is, we use the word repentance a lot. It just really just means turn. It means that you, you're turning from what you've been, turning from what you've hoped in, turning in from what you've lived for, turning your back to those things and falling on your knees before Jesus because he is the resurrected Lord and Savior. And nothing is more important than that. If you aren't sure if you've repented or submitted your life to God, Paul gives us a nice clue to look at. He says that there are going to be deeds in keeping with repentance. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? That's a neat saying. It just means that if this has really happened, if Christ has entered your life like he did Paul's and like he did mine, that deeds are going to authenticate that. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden you become this person that, you know, starts doing good works and doesn't sin anymore. That's not what it means. The good works are present because the Holy Spirit's present. But that's what happens. Something changes. I love what J.I. Packer says. He said, the New Testament word for repentance means changing one's mind so that one's views, values, goals, and ways are changed and one's whole life is lived differently. The change is radical, both inwardly and outwardly, mind and judgment, will and affections, behavior and lifestyle, motives and purposes are all involved. Repenting means starting to live a new life. That's good. When you know, think, look at what happened to Paul. Did Paul's life look the same on the Damascus Road once God, God got a hold of him? No, not even close. And I can say that my life doesn't look the same after meeting Jesus. And that's because of what Jesus said he would do for those who repent and believe. In verse 18, he says, you will be turned from lightness to dark. Those are opposite ends of the spectrum. You will be turned from the power of Satan to the power of God. You will be forgiven for your sins. You will be sanctified or made holy by faith. And you will be given a place in the family of God. If that's happened to you, it should look different. Something should have changed. Does that sound like what's happened to you? If it does, then guess what? You need to tell others. And that's what Paul's doing here. That's what Paul's whole motivation. This, this changed everything for me. The resurrection changed everything. Guess what now? I'm going to tell everybody. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to keep it a secret. I'm not going to like hide it under a bushel basket. I'm going to let it shine, right? It's the old song. I'm going to tell people. And that's the last point is the importance of a personal testimony. This is the third time, and I've had to preach all of them, I think. <laughs> so if I'm repetitive, sorry. This is the third time that 
Paul's testimony has been recorded in Acts. And that tells me this is important, right? When, we, when you see things in threes in the Bible, holy, 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 means something. Pay attention. Why is a personal story of what God has done in your life so important? Well, there's a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons that in our postmodern world where truth is just kind of up to the individual, your testimony represents a truth that can't be refuted or challenged. Right? People talk about, well, that's my truth. And, and, and nobody can say that, you know, this is your truth. This is what happened to you. This is your experience. People can't shut that down. They might not want to hear what you have to say, but a lot of people don't want to be preached to, but they'll listen to a, a personal story. That, that carries a lot of weight today. So it's a powerful way for you to engage with a non-believer. But a lot of you might say, you know what? I have a boring testimony. How many of you guys would say you have a boring testimony? There's a, there's a few hands. I've heard that a lot. Oh, I have a boring testimony. You know, I don't think that's true. I would completely disagree with you because the power of God is never boring. Uh, the transformation of a sinner to a saint by the power of the resurrection is just not boring, guys. Jesus isn't boring. And that's what you're talking about when you share your testimony. I used to think that, you know, I, I did a lot of bad things before I became a Christian. I was 19 and I, I tried to, I won't even, I'm not even going to say, I was a bad dude. And, and when I used to share my testimony, I used to love to just focus on all the gory details. The more gory the details, the better my testimony was, I thought. And, and, and it was almost like, you know, there were times when I would be sharing my testimony, and I almost expected somebody to come up and say, do you miss it? Because it seems like you like that better. It seems like you really enjoyed that part. But the other stuff, like, you know, and then I became a Christian. and you know, uh, I mean, that's how I felt sometimes. And so now my testimony is not, it's, you know, it used to be very front-heavy. It's not anymore. You know, I was a wretch. I was a sinful man. And I'm not proud of that. And I don't even want to talk about what I was because I'm not that anymore. That's the important part of a testimony is that I'm not that anymore. Now I'm this. Our testimony is not the gospel, but it certainly should include the gospel. And so if you don't have this down, you should have like a, a, a three-minute version and maybe a 30-minute version, right? And know which one to use at the right time because it's important. Your testimony should, it should include life without Christ, Okay? For some of you that were raised in a Christian home, you don't really remember what that's like, but you kind of know what, what that's like if you think about it. Life without Christ means hopelessness. It means desperation. It means, it's like life without air. <laughs> that's what it's like. And you can imagine that even if you never really experienced it. So life without Christ is the first one. The second one is at some point you were introduced to Jesus. That's the guy that rode up on the white horse, right? That's the guy that you needed so much that came to save the day. And you talk about that. And, and, and when you're sharing your testimony, you always exalt Jesus and not self. I've heard people share testimonies before when it's like, are you the Savior or is he? Because I can't tell from your testimony. There should be no question about who's the Savior. So you talk about Jesus. You talk about the fact that because he loved you, he suffered and he died in your place. He became your substitute on the cross for your sins. He hung there for you. He hung. You talk about that personal connection. And then he rose from the dead which means I'm forgiven and I'm cleansed and I'm, I'm, I have this relationship with him. So you, talk, you exalt him and his work. You talk about repentance and belief. You talk about how you turned from the old life. You turned from those things and you, you placed all your cards you know, on his table. You were all in for Jesus. That needs to come out. And then you just talk about life with Christ, what that's like. Life with Christ, like I've already said, means hope. It means peace. It means joy. It means being fully known and being fully loved. 
know how crazy that is? God knows everything about you, the stuff nobody else knows. And he said, I still want them. I'll still send my son for them. I'll still love them. I'll still call them my own. That's amazing. Talk about the freedom that you have. You know, it used to be, uh, this isn't my notes, so bear with me. This is extra, This is bonus material. We're almost done. Tim Keller is a guy I enjoy a lot. He's smarter than me, and, and yet he speaks in a way that I can understand. But, but he, in this quote I just saw this week, he talked about how it used to be the biggest virtue in life was to be good. That was the challenge, was to be good. It was important for people to be good, you know, to have integrity, to be have a good reputation, those kinds of things. And so when we presented the gospel to people, we would say, you know what? Sorry, but you're not good because the bar is set this high and, and you're not, you, you're, you know, you're not good. And so that's how we would approach people. And we still think we need to approach people that way. But in a postmodern world, that's not the biggest virtue. People already think they're good. They don't think they're not. And you can't convince them they're not because it's all relative. So that's not how we approach people anymore. Now, um, this idea of your truth or, or freedom like they feel free. They want freedom is the greatest virtue. If I can achieve freedom, I can do whatever I want. I can be whoever I want. I can identify however I want. I'm free to do all those things. That's how we need to approach it now because there's no freedom in that. You're still shackled. They just don't know they are. And so now when we preach the gospel, we need to come at it from that standpoint. Jesus makes me free. My identity in him, who he says I am before him, that is real freedom. So, so if you can start to rethink, doesn't mean you change the gospel. You don't. The gospel's the same, but maybe the way you present it might be a little different. Okay, that wasn't in my notes. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm probably over time. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song. Father, um, thank you so much for the, the narratives that we have in the Bible about uh, Paul and, and, and his testimony and all that he showed us to model after. Thank you, Father, that he presented himself in this respectful way and that he loved people with all his heart, even his enemies, Lord. Give us that kind of heart for the lost. Help us, Father, to have great hope in the resurrection and to proclaim it unabashedly to people that need to hear it. And then, Lord, just help us to be willing to to share this story of what you've done in our lives, how good you've been to us. It doesn't have to be complicated, Lord. You are amazing. And let us give us opportunities again, we pray, to, to tell more and more people about you in this time when hope is a rare commodity for people. And, and we have it in spades, Lord. So thank you so much for sending Jesus. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for who you are in his name. Amen.